Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at one of our worship services. Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at either 9 or 11. Morning. How are you all doing? Did you have a good Christmas? Did, uh, didn't didn't uh, Mike and Zach do a great job over Christmas preaching? Do you guys want one more Christmas sermon? Too bad, Christmas is over. <laughs> Open your Bibles to Mark 8. Beginning in verse 22. <clears throat> and they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Amen? The word of the Lord. So we have uh, an election year coming up. You guys excited? <laughs> The guy gets like four years goes by real fast, right? Um, so I don't love election years, but I, I do like um, I do like this thing that late night hosts do around election time, where they go out on the street and they find some random person. The person, the other person, like, hey, who are you voting for? And uh, and the person will say, oh, you know, Hillary Clinton. And they'll be like, okay, name five of her policies. And the person will be like, uh, uh, uh. And then the guy's like, okay, what about this policy? And the guy's like, yeah, I like that policy. And what about this policy? Oh, yeah, I like that policy. And what they're doing is they're listing off all the policies of the other candidate. I'm talking about. And so people are just like, and it, before, like, that happens both ways, to be clear. I'm using different 
different politicians for different services. <laughs> the, 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 point, the point is this, though. These people, they're committed to the idea of someone. They generally like someone. They identify with someone. They think they have a good picture of who that person is. But when they're confronted with their policies or they're given the ideas or agenda or plan of that person, they're not on board. They like the person, but they don't like the plan. They like that person's identity, maybe who they are. They're not big fans of their mission. We come to a passage that is dealing with the same issue today in the Gospel of Mark. I love the book of Mark. It's probably my favorite book of the Bible. I've spent more time reading this book than other books, and I like it for a lot of reasons. It begins like subversively and quickly and sort of really almost like climactically. It says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and immediately goes into this Old Testament quotation. It says this in verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. It's a story about God returning to his people. It's a story about God redeeming and saving his people. It's a story about God restoring his people. It's a story about the Son of God, that is Jesus, walking the road that his Father has laid out for him. And over and over again, we see this word appear in the Gospel of Mark. The word is immediately. Immediately, Jesus did such and such a thing. Immediately, Jesus did such and such a thing. It, it, it starts quickly. He, he shows up, he gets baptized by John, he gets tempted in the desert, then he goes out and he says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Believe in the gospel. He calls disciples, he goes in the synagogue and he begins to preach and he does all of these amazing feats really, really quick and over and over again, the gospel of Mark is saying he did these things immediately. Immediately he did this, immediately he did this, and he right away did the next thing. And it goes really, really quick pace until we get to where we're at today. And it actually slows down a little bit. And we come to this hinge point in the gospel, this moment where things go in a different direction than even the readers or the people who are with Jesus might be expecting. It's a story about abandoning our own desires, our own plans, our own priorities, all the things that we care about for the desires and the plans and the priorities of Jesus. It's about abandoning ourselves for Jesus. That's what this passage is about. And it happens at a really acute and poignant moment in the, in the time of Jesus's ministry. So the, the first thing I wanna cover is uh, trading. Following Jesus is trading our power for his power. Following Jesus is trading our power for his power. I wanna jump back into verse 22 and just read a few verses real quick. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. As Jesus' ministry has grown, he's become more famous. When he goes places now, people gather sometimes in the thousands to hear him teach and to hear him preach. 
They bring their sick people who are infirmed in various ways to be touched and healed by Jesus. They bring the demonized for Jesus to cast out demons. He has become very famous, very popular, and lots of people want to hear him and want to see him and want to meet him. He has become, in a certain regard, well-loved. At the same time, he's become infamous. There are people who hate Jesus. You have the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and as Jesus has gained influence, they've lost influence. And as Jesus has gained popularity, they've lost popularity. And over and over again, they find themselves frustrated with the words and actions of Jesus, so much so that as the narrative unfolds, they begin to devise this plot that will see Jesus betrayed, arrested, and crucified. And at the end of chapter 8, where we're at now, Jesus begins to leave his public ministry. We have this short reprieve where he is primarily with his disciples. He's transitioning to a mostly private ministry for a little while before he goes back to Jerusalem. And he's in Bethsaida with his disciples. And this is the last very public miracle he does for a chapter or so. And people arrive and, and they, they find Jesus and they say to Jesus, we have this friend who's blind, would you just touch him? And throughout Jesus' ministry, people have been brought to Jesus who are sick in, in different ways and Jesus will either touch them or speak to them and they'll be healed and it's happened so often and so regularly that people see Jesus and that's the first thing they think that they want to do. They want to get their friend who's sick to Jesus so Jesus can do something about it. And this man is blind and blindness today is difficult for people who are blind. There's all kinds of accommodations, but back in the first century, it's far worse. And blindness is way more common. We have modern medicine today, which can, for different reasons, help people who might have simple ailments become able to see. We have glasses and all kinds of things like that back then. Blindness happened for very simple reasons, and people who became blind, they stayed blind and most of them were unable to work, and they had to rely on the generosity of their families. The situation this guy is in, the state of his life is not good. And his friends, they come to Jesus and like, Jesus, will you please heal our friend? So Jesus grabs him, and he walks him out of the village. And then we get to the weird part, right? What does he do? Yeah, he's, he's, he spits on the guy's eyes. There's any doctors here? They're like, ah. And and um, so I was like, okay, I'm gonna find the answer to why Jesus does this. And I I read a lot a lot of stuff. And here's the answer. I like I don't 100 percent know. I'm gonna be honest. I'm gonna be honest with you. I don't 100 percent know. Uh, and no one really really knows. Uh, the best answer is something like this: Jesus touches people to heal them. And in this case, for one reason or another, the transfer of Jesus's power. It happens through the transfer of his spit. He does it elsewhere, though. He doesn't just do it here. He does it here and then one other place in Mark. He does it in Mark 7. I want to read this passage real quick. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. 
And Jesus charged them to tell no one. The, the more he charged them, <laughs> the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished, saying, uh, astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So we have these two passages where Jesus heals people with some sort of sensory deprivation, someone who can't see and someone who can't hear. And in between these passages are passages that help us to understand all of them together. So in seven, Jesus heals a deaf man. In eight, Jesus heals a blind man. And in between, we have these two passages, both of them dealing with the issue of ignorance. We have the Pharisees in 8, 11 through 13 who want Jesus to give them a sign. Jesus has given them lots of signs at this point. And he declines. The Pharisees cannot see who Jesus actually is. They can't see it. It doesn't matter what miracles he does or what he says, all the amazing things people say that he does. They cannot see who Jesus actually is. They continue to demand a sign. But in the second passage, it's the disciples. You guys know the story? They're in the boat with Jesus and, and there's not enough bread. And they're worried that there's not enough bread. And literally right before this, Jesus has fed 4,000 people by multiplying bread. And a little bit before that, he fed 5,000 people by multiplying. They're in, in, in a boat with the greatest bread maker of all time. And they're worried that they don't, ha they don't have enough bread. <laughs> they can't see who Jesus really is. And Mark, as he's, as he's composing his gospel, as he's reflecting on the life of Jesus, he is arranging these passages to help us understand them. Jesus heals a deaf man. People are ignorant. Jesus heals a blind man. He is using blindness and deafness. And in our case this morning, blindness is a metaphor for spiritual blindness. People who can't see who Jesus actually is. I'm trying to give you an example of why blindness is such a helpful um, analogy or a metaphor. Uh, you, you might be able to tell I'm, I'm not uh, an athlete. <laughs> I don't do a lot of sports. Um, I don't watch them. I don't play them. It's not true. I played Little League for about two years. Um, my favorite position was the bench, and that was the end of my <laughs> career. And one day I decided, you know, I need to get healthy, and you start, I need to start exercising, and pretty quickly into that, I, I kind of hurt my back a little bit. Um, because uh, I remember I'm not an athlete. And, and I go to the doctor, and I'm not taking it well because I've not done enough things in my life where I could hurt myself. So I go to the doctor, and I'm like, is it, you know, it going to get better? He's like, yeah, relax, it's going to get better. Here's some exercises, you know, core exercises, some stretches. Give it six to eight weeks, it'll get better. And through hard work and, and discipline and paying attention and seeking wise counsel, slowly over the course of eight weeks, it, it got better. I had a hurt back that got better. If I had gone into the doctor with a severed spine and said, will it get better? Can I go to rehab? The doctor would say, no, you, you can't go to rehab. Your situation is one in which you can do nothing to gain your ability to walk back. It's never, never going to happen. Blindness, especially in the first century, is like that. Jesus cannot send this blind man to rehab. He can't give him exercises to do in order to get better. The blind man can do nothing whatsoever about his own situation. He can only, along with his friends, approach Jesus and say, please help me. He is completely unable to do anything through his own power. He has to trade his power for Jesus' power. 
This is the message of the gospel over and over again as it's declared in, in the Bible. We hear even more profound examples, uh, metaphors than this. Paul, when he's talking to the church at Ephesus, he says to them, you were once dead in your sins and trespasses, dead, but you have been made alive in Christ Jesus, dead and then alive. Someone who is dead has no will, has no strength, has no power. They could only be acted upon. I want to give you, I want to give you an example. Um, I, I, uh, I went to El Camino during college, um, or sorry, during high school because I was homeschooled and I had to do math and my mom wasn't really a math person. So I, I took geometry classes, which I did not like. And I met this guy. Uh, he was uh, studying. He was from Singapore to protect his anonymity. I'm going to call him Frank, I guess. And uh, Frank uh, was great at geometry. He loved geometry, and I loved Jesus, and we talked about both those things the whole semester. And we'd have long conversations about who Jesus is and religion, and he was kind of like an agnostic, maybe an atheist. And um, after hours of talking with this guy, at the end of the semester, he converted to Islam. And I was like, oh, I was crushed, right? And that didn't end our relationship. He continued to, like, call me. He, he has my phone number, so he calls me, and he would try and, like, convert me to Islam. He would do, like, you know, Muslim apologetics on me, and, and we would kind of go back and forth, and these conversations lasted for, like, two or three years. He'd call me, we'd talk for an hour, that'd be it, um, on a pretty regular basis. And then after about two or three years, he calls me and he says, listen, you haven't convinced me. I'm settled. This is our last phone call. And he hangs up, and I don't hear from him for years, for years. And then I'm sitting in my office one day over here at Hope Chapel, and I'm the pastor on duty, which means I just take whatever calls come in or whatever people happen to visit. And I, I get this call, and I pick it up, and this voice I recognize starts talking. And I'm like, hey, uh, Frank, do you, do you remember me? Uh, it's Andrew, bad at math, fan of Jesus. And he's like, I do remember you. And I was like, what's going on? And he's like, I tried. I tried so hard. Uh, I, I was a Muslim for, for years, and I, I tried. I, I did the things I was supposed to do. I've tried to be a good person. I've tried to be, uh, to be moral and to, to, to be acceptable to God. I realize I just can't do it. I know, I know that I'm not naturally a good person. And I was like, I have good news for you, Frank. See, uh, God changed his heart. God took someone who was spiritually blind, unable to do anything about their own situation, and he gave them vision. He gave them vision. Salvation uh, is not achieved. It's received. It is given to you. It is granted to you. It is only possible through the power of God and sustained through the power of God. And as long as we try and hold on to our own power, we will never see clearly. Once we've traded power for his power, we trade our plans for his plans. Go back with me to verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, 
who do people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly and Peter took him aside (laughs) and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. We have this important moment where Jesus finally asks them, who do the people say that I am? And they begin to offer these answers. Some people say you're John the Baptist. Incorrect. Some people say that you're Elijah. Incorrect. Some people say one of the prophets. Incorrect. And finally, Jesus, after he hears all these answers that he's missing the mark, he says to his disciples who he has spent a lot of time with. And he says, who do you say that I am? And then Peter Who's excited? The spokesperson. He says, I know who you are. You are the Christ. Does he get it right? Yes, he gets it right. You are the Christ. And then Jesus charges them to tell no one. Why would Peter come to this conclusion? Why would he assume that Jesus is the Christ? I think it's because Peter knows his Old Testament. He's aware of what it looks like when God returns to restore his people, to redeem his people, to ransom his people. We can go to this passage in Isaiah, um, Isaiah 35. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense of God, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Look at this. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Peter's been with him. Peter's been with Jesus. He's been with Jesus from the very beginning. He's one of the first disciples that Jesus ever calls. And Peter is with Jesus in the synagogue when he's preaching, really early on in Mark. And he's preaching like one who has authority, not as one of the scribes. And the people are thinking, this guy's not preaching the way that we're normally hearing preaching. He's acting like he has authority that maybe he doesn't have. And then a man with, with, a, with a demon comes into the synagogue. You, you know the story? Everyone like gets really quiet. They're <laughs> like, what's he going to do? Jesus casts the demon out and the people say, who is this? Even the unclean spirits hear him and obey and his fame grows and people are impressed and they're amazed with Jesus. And a little bit later, he's at a house. And now there's so many people that there's not room at the door to even get in and hear Jesus. And not only are people hearing Jesus, they're bringing their friends and their family members to be healed by Jesus. And these four friends with no sense of decorum or etiquette. While Jesus is teaching, they climb up on the house, very bold, and they dig out the roof. I'm wondering when Jesus stopped. And they lower their friend down, totally cutting the line. And Jesus says what to him? He says to him, your sins are forgiven. This guy can't walk. And the first thing Jesus says to him is, your sins are forgiven. I'm sure his friends are like, 
But the scribes are there and they hear Jesus forgive this guy's sin and they consider in their hearts that only the one God can forgive sins. They say this is blasphemy, but Jesus knows what they're thinking. And he says to them, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or grab your mat, pick it up and go home. So that you may know the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He looks at the paralytic, the man who can't walk. And he says, grab your mat and go home. And the guy gets up, he grabs his mat and he goes home. And people say, we have never seen anything like this. A man who has a withered hand gets healed. And then finally they're at the Sea of Galilee. They're, they're on this boat and this boat is breaking apart. It's a big storm. And what is Jesus doing? He's asleep. <laughs> He's asleep during this raging storm. And his disciples, as the boat is about to break apart, they're terrified. They come to Jesus. And I hope we hear our own, own voices here. They say, Jesus, do you even care that we're about to die? <laughs> Jesus gets up. And through word alone calms a storm, the sea is flat. And the disciples finally ask out loud this question that has been implicit, that's been under the skin of this text all along the way. They say this, who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And it grows, he raises a young girl back to life. He casts out a man with a thousand demons. He casts the demons out of this man. He heals more and more and more people. He walks on the very sea that he calmed. He feeds 4,000. He feeds 5,000. And finally, we get to this passage where Jesus says to his disciples, as they've been witness to all of these things, he says to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter's like shaking. He's so excited. He's like the guy in class that knows the answer, that can't wait to show everyone else that he knows the answer. He's like, I know. <laughs> he says, I'm the Christ. You are the Christ. And, and Peter says this, and Jesus is like, yeah, that's right. And then uh, the Christ, the Messiah, begins to describe to, to Peter and to the disciples what his messianic plan is. He says, you're right. And now I've got a plan. We're going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to suffer much, and I'm going to die. And Peter's like, what? <laughs> no. That's, that's ridiculous. And he grabs Jesus and walks him away, and he begins to describe to Jesus, the Lord of the universe, why this is a bad idea. He rebukes Jesus. I think we read this and we're like, ooh, bad move, Pete. That was not good. Why does Peter respond this way? Why does Peter respond this way? Peter responds this way because he is a faithful first century Jew, because his people have been under the boot of oppression for hundreds of years because they don't have the king they want, because they're captive in their own land, because they're paying taxes to an oppressive, corrupt regime. Because their land is technically in the empire of another person who calls himself a god. And his whole life, Peter's been saying, when is God going to do something about this? They were expecting a Messiah to show up with a sword and to deal with Caesar and to deal with Rome. And this whole time, Peter's been watching Jesus do things that he didn't know was possible. And he's thinking, this is my guy. This is going to be the guy. It's time to deal with the problem. The Romans have been in charge for too long. And before them, it was the Seleucids. And before them, it was the Greeks. And before them, it was the Assyrians and the Babylonians. We haven't been our own people in our own land with our own king for way too long. Now's the time. Jesus just asked who he is. He's shaking. He's excited. You're the Christ. And Jesus is like, 
and I'm going to go, and I'm going to suffer and be rejected, and I'm going to die. Peter understands who Jesus is. He does not understand why Jesus has come. He's like the blind man who saw partly, but needed to be touched by Jesus one more time. Peter understood the identity of Jesus, but not the mission. Peter had other plans for Jesus. He had other plans. Plans that were deeply connected to his deepest desires. So he pulls Jesus aside. He's like, no, Jesus, that is not the plan. I think this is, I think this is like the endemic problem. Uh, mostly, honestly, uh, of people, I think, that, that come to church on a regular basis. It's a problem outside the church, too, but this is it's for you. Uh, we live these sorts of lives where we talk about Jesus and we, we go to church and we sing some worship songs, and that's good. We should be doing all those things. But when something we, we love a lot, something that we think we deserve, a future hope or desire or dream fades away, this is in my own heart too, we grab Jesus and we pull him aside and we say, this is not what we agreed on. I, un I understand. Like, I get it. We like Jesus, sometimes we don't like his mission. We like Jesus, sometimes we don't like his plan. Jesus doesn't say, I'm just going to do these things. He says, I must do these things. He says to them, it is necessary that the Son of Man go to Jerusalem and be rejected. It is necessary that he suffers. It is necessary that he dies. He must do those things. Not just he's arbitrarily choosing to, he must do them. He actually makes a prediction three times. Three times over the course of the next couple chapters, he tells them what's going to happen. And each time it kind of comes after this bad moment on the part of the disciples. In chapter 9, right before his second prediction, the disciples are arguing over who is the greatest. <laughs> they're walking somewhere, they're arguing over the greatest is, and Jesus is like, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, nothing. <laughs> Jesus then tells them the first shall be last, the last shall be first. He's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to die. In chapter 10, James and John ask to be at the right and the left hand of Jesus. They don't know what they're asking. Jesus declines their request. But when the other disciples find out that James and John have already begun to try and secure their positions of power, when Jesus comes into his kingdom, they all get angry and indignant. And then Jesus, most explicitly in the entire gospel, describes to them why he is doing what he's doing why it is necessary, why he must go to Jerusalem. He says it here in Mark 10, 43 through 45. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has been walking the way of the Lord. It opens Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And immediately and immediately and immediately Jesus has done the thing the Father has laid out for him to do. He has not deviated. And now his face is set like flint to Jerusalem. He is going there to achieve, to accomplish what it is that God has called him to. And the road that he is on goes through a cross before it goes to a throne. And the disciples are having a hard time 
stomaching that. But Jesus is explaining to them over and over and over and over again, I've come for a purpose. And now in 10, he tells them to ransom, to ransom people, to pay a price. Remember, Peter knows his his Old Testament. The passage I just read to you, it, it continues this way, the one from Isaiah. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Jesus says, I'm going to go and die. And Peter says, no, 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 you don't get it. We have to deal with Rome. They're a problem. The emperor there, he's declared himself a god. They've oppressed us. We need to deal with it. And Jesus is saying to Peter, no, no, Rome is a problem. They are not the problem. There's always going to be real problems in the world. And I'm not saying they're not real. But the problem, the fundamental problem that Jesus is going to deal with at the cross is sin and death. And Rome is just a symptom of those your main problem in life if you don't think it is sin is not your main problem i have a i have a six-year-old daughter she's almost seven and um her her, our parents-in-law have a have a wooden deck and we go there and she wants to go play on the wooden deck and i say put shoes on or you're gonna get splinters and i hear her feet like patting outside she'll come in and she'll have a splinter And what I didn't know is that splinters imbue six-year-old girls with the power of ten men. Like, I'm like doing like a full-on like wrestling, I don't know, full Nelson, just like my my wife's got tweezers. She's just trying to, you know what I'm saying? We're trying to help her. (laughs) Does not sound like we're trying to help her from the outside. She's screaming and yelling things I've never heard a six-year-old say before. And she's saying, just leave it in. Just leave it in. Put some cream on it. Give me some ice cream. Let me watch a movie. Just leave it in. I'm like, no, no, listen, listen. The pain you're feeling right now that you don't want to think about, that's not really the problem. The problem, it's the splinter. We have to deal with this problem. It's causing all the other problems. She's like, no, just leave it in. I don't want to worry about it. Just stop what you're doing. Leave it in. Give me some way to cope. That's all I want. But unless I deal with the real problem, unless I deal with the real problem, I'm not actually helping her. Jesus is saying this to his disciples, there is a real enemy, more real than the Romans, more real than the oppression you're experiencing, more real even than sickness and demon possession, sin. And its consequence, death. And at the cross, we see the death of death in the death of Jesus. We see sin conquered. We see the world turn towards rightness. If Jesus just came up and dealt with Rome, some other empire would take its place. We have to trade our plans for Jesus' plans. Thirdly, our priorities for his priorities. Read with uh, me in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him, with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus here says, take up your cross. And it's the first time he mentions the instrument of his own death. Most of you know this, but the cross was profoundly humiliating. It was public and it was excruciatingly painful. It was the most uh, terrible and disturbing way the Romans had devised to execute someone. It was reserved typically for criminals and dissidents and people who needed to be made an example. And often when you were crucified, there would be the plank that was vertical stuck in the ground, and there would be the horizontal plank, the one that you would be nailed or tied to. And if you were charged with a crime and sentenced to crucifixion, you would be forced to carry usually the horizontal beam from one place to another, like Jesus does later, and then placed on the cross with the beam. Jesus is saying to them, carry along with you the instrument of your death. Carry along with you the instrument of your death. He's describing to them two qualities of someone who has exchanged their power for God's power, their plan for God's plan, who truly desires to follow Jesus. Self-denial and self-sacrifice. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me. Because if you are carrying anything else, you can't carry a cross. If you are carrying anything else, you cannot carry a cross. Then Jesus gives this like comparison. He's like, is it worth the whole world? Is your soul worth the whole world? First of all, you, you can't even have the whole world. There are some men who have tried. Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar and Napoleon try and get the whole world. They can't actually get the whole world. They get a small fraction of it. They don't succeed. Even if you could, which you can't. But even if you could somehow have the whole world, you cannot keep it. I've been to Napoleon's tomb in Paris. He's got this big, giant, ornate coffin, and inside is a corpse. He's dead. He's still dead. Jesus says, your soul is not worth the whole world. The whole world is not worth your soul. It's more immeasurably valuable than the whole world. Even if you could have everything, which you can't, even if you could have everything, it's not worth your soul. And the sharp, like acute part of this is so many of us are willing to give up our soul for so much less. Following Jesus means there will be denial, it means there will be sacrifice, it means that you have to put down whatever you are carrying instead of a cross. A desire for money or fame or family or a spouse or adoration or whatever it is. I want to talk real quickly, just I want to close this, this, this figure in, in church history. His name is, um, you've probably heard of him, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he was a theologian, he was a pastor during World War II during the rise of, of Nazi Germany. 
and he, he's a very famous pastor. He's written all these books. And what happens during Nazi Germany is you could still set up Christian churches as long as you, for one reason or another, uh, bent the knee or swore fealty to the Nazi party. So I can go to a library now, and I can find books written by pastors or self-described pastors or, or theologians or Christians who supported the Nazi party. They put down the cross, and for one reason or another, they pick up the swastika. Because they're afraid, or because they actually do agree with the Nazi party, or whatever. They make a choice. But not Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was carrying a cross, so he had no room for anything else. And he opposes the Nazi party, and he's executed by them. He's, he's hung in a camp. He says this about, about carrying the cross. He says, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ's suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. I, I really don't know any way to, to drive this home better than to just end with, with Jesus' warning. Like, I read this warning, and even though I believe in the power of God and the security of salvation, I want to hear it. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. He's saying this to people who have been with him for years who have endangered their lives for him already, who have been following him devoutly. He's saying that to these people. I want us to hear that warning. I want us to pray that our spiritual blindness will be taken away. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www dot hopechapel dot org